Well, hano hanui keakua, aloha keakua ia oi, a neighbor of New Zealand uh, in Hawaiian, good morning and glory to God. It is so good to be here this morning and good morning to all of you watching online from New Zealand or Tanzania or Vanuatu or Pakistan. We know you're watching and we're so glad you're joining us this morning here at the Orchard. Wherever you may be, we're glad you're here. It's a great place to be on this Sunday morning. Last week, Robin and I had the privilege of being in Oregon, a beautiful state where I was invited to preach at a very large church that meets in a huge barn. And the name of the church is the Barn Church. It was a wonderful time. And after the service, a young man came up to me and he was training to run a marathon. And as we talked, I was reminded of a marathon that my beautiful wife Robin and I did 20 years ago. We completed it in Honolulu, Hawaii. Well, we actually didn't run the marathon. We walked the marathon. We walked all 26.2 miles of it, holding our hands together, and, well, not quite 26.2 miles, 26.1 miles, because one-tenth of a mile before the finish line, Robin saw the finish line, and she suddenly let go of my hand and sprinted towards the finish, leaving me in the dust, and uh, I was left behind. So Robin finished strong. And I also remembered, as we were thinking about that, another marathon, another race. Uh, this was an ultra marathon held over 40 years ago from Sydney to Melbourne, Australia. About 150 world-class runners entered this six-day, 500-mile event. So the race officials, they were rather surprised when a 61-year-old man shuffled up to them and handed to them his entry form. His name was Cliff Young, and he was wearing farmer overalls and farmer galoshes, farmer boots. And, and, and at first they said, sorry, sir, I, this really race isn't really for you. But he explained to the race officials that he'd grown up on a 2,000-acre farm with thousands of sheep. And, and, and Cliff patiently explained to the race officials how they couldn't afford horses or, or tractors on his farm. So his job, when the storms came, and they did, was to go out and round up all the sheep, and sometimes it would take two or three days of running to finish his job rounding up all of these sheep. So they finally agreed to let Cliff enter, and the race begin. The other runners, 150 world-class runners, instantly took off, leaving Cliff in the dust as he shuffled along in his farmer bib overalls and his farmer boots. But, but Cliff, he, he didn't know that all of the runners were supposed to stop each night and rest. But, but Cliff didn't know that. He thought it was a race, and so he just kept on going, kept on shuffling in his farmer boots and his overalls, and by the end of the fifth night, Cliff Young had passed all 
150 of the world-class runners because he didn't stop. He stayed focused on the finish line, and he won the race. Cliff, Cliff became an inspiration to millions of young runners throughout Australia and beyond, and he continued to compete in long-distance races until the age of 81. Cliff Young finished strong. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is, is Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. It reads, The people who know their God will be firm and durable. They will do bold deeds and daring acts. The Bible is filled with true stories of men and women who finished strong. But, but, but do you know how they finished strong? How did they do that? Very simply, they knew their God. The Hebrew word translated to know in Daniel 11.32, the people that know their God, is found originally in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. It's translated yada. And so my message this morning is you ought to yada. You ought to know God. The Bible says Adam yada Eve. Adam knew Eve. It's to know intimately. And they produced a child. And knowing God intimately always produces good fruit. How do I know? The Bible tells me so in Galatians 5.22. For example, before Paul committed his life to Jesus Christ, to follow Jesus Christ, he knew God intellectually, but, but it wasn't until after he committed his life to Jesus Christ that he knew God intimately. He realized it's one thing to know the Word of God, but it's another thing to know the God of the Word. To know the God of the Word. And just before he was thrown into prison, just before he was beheaded, Paul wrote, and this is our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, Galatians, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. The Bible says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. And I don't mean to say I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus is calling us. So, in this passage, we read that Paul thought about everything he accomplished in his life, and he concluded that no matter how many good things he had done, no matter what he had accomplished in the past, and it was a lot, it was all rubbish. It was all rubbish compared to simply knowing Christ and knowing Christ simply. So when Paul experienced the mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and when Paul suffered with him, 
sharing in his death, as we just read in verse 10, he came to know Christ, not just intellectually, but transformationally, intimately. And Paul finished strong. Did you, uh, did you ever wonder what happened to the original 12 disciples of our Lord? Those 12 that he called, what happened to them? Well, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he was thrown from the top of the temple down to the street below about 100 feet. Why? Because he refused to deny his faith in Christ. People were absolutely amazed that although he was terribly, terribly battered and mangled, he survived the fall. So they gathered around and beat him to death. It's true. James finished strong. Peter, as you recall, Peter was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross. He told his tormentors that he felt unworthy to die in the same way that his Lord had died. Peter finished strong. Matthias, that apostle who replaced Judas, he was stoned, then he was beheaded because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Matthias finished strong. Jude, Jude was shot with so many arrows that, uh, that he bled to death. He was shot by those who opposed the gospel. But Jude finished strong. James, the son of Zebedee, he was arrested and sentenced to death by beheading, but, but his prison guard, the man that was assigned to be shackled with him until his execution, was so deeply moved by James' confidence, by his peace, by his testimony, that he too accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. And when it was time for James' execution... The same prison guard that had been shackled to guard James knelt down right beside him and he said, I too am not ashamed of the gospel. And he was crucified, he was beheaded alongside of James. So James finished strong. John, well, John went uh, as a missionary to Rome. And the Romans, well, they tried to poison him. You remember the story. But when he drank the poison, he didn't die. And so they threw him into this huge vat of, of boiling oil. And you remember, he still didn't die. So they pulled him out and they sent him off to an island and sentenced him to a life of hard labor to work in those mines with, on this desolate island along with some of the most violent and perverted criminals in the land. And, and, and there he wrote the book of Revelation. John finished strong. Matthew. Well, Matthew was sent as a missionary to Ethiopia. But, but after he got there, he was stabbed to death. Matthew finished strong. Mark. He, he went as a missionary to Egypt. Egypt. 
And after he arrived, he was tied up and he was drugged by horses through the streets of Alexandria until his lifeless body was unrecognizable. But Mark, Mark finished strong. Luke, Luke went as a missionary to Greece. And after he finally arrived in Athens, they put a noose around his neck because he was unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Luke died at the end of that rope. Luke finished strong. Well, Andrew, Andrew also went as a as a missionary to Greece, and after he finally arrived, seven soldiers savagely beat him until he almost died, and then they tied him to a cross. And for the next two days, clinging to life, two days and two nights, Andrew hung on that cross, and it was during those two days that Andrew shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with the very men that were torturing him. Andrew died on that cross for the sake of the gospel. And Andrew finished strong. Bartholomew. Bartholomew went as a missionary to Turkey. The Turks beat him so horribly that he was unrecognizable. But Bartholomew finished strong. Thomas went out as a missionary to India. And when he arrived, he was speared to death. But because of his example in India, as that missionary, there were tens of thousands that came to a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Thomas finished strong. The great preacher and writer Chuck Swindoll wrote, and I quote, in vain, I have searched the Bible, looking for examples of early believers whose lives were marked by rigidity, predictability, inhibition, dullness, and caution. Fortunately, grim, frowning, joyless saints in scriptures are conspicuous by their absence. Instead, the examples I find are adventure, risk-taking, enthusiastic, and authentic believers whose joy was contagious even in times of full trial. Their vision was broad even when death drew near. Rules were few and changes were welcome. The contrast between then and now is staggering. Hmm. So, how did those disciples finish strong? Well, let's go back to our text and look once again at Philippians chapter 3. First, as we mentioned, they knew Jesus intimately. They knew they were the object of his perfect love. In verse 10, the Bible says he chose to give birth to us, giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. James chapter 1, verse 18. 
Do you know that you're God's, God's prized possession? Do you know that? Are you sure of that? The Bible says in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says God. Thoughts of peace and not evil. To give you a future and hope. The Bible says God made you for a reason. The Bible says long before you were conceived by your parents, you were conceived in the mind of God. Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. And the Bible says God custom made you just the way he wanted you. He gave you your talents, your unique personality. God decided when you would be born, where you would be born, how long would you, you would live, and he planned it all with great precision. So, Orchard, let not your heart be troubled. God loves you more than you can ever, ever know. And that's why he wants to walk with you. Jesus said, with me, you will finish strong. Second, second, they experienced the mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. That same power that raised Christ from the dead was available to his disciples and it's available to us today. Right now, that same power. Paul said in verse 19, when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. <sighs> wow. Did you notice? Did you notice that Jesus didn't say, Come to me, all you who are religious, keeping the law. Hundreds and hundreds of legal passages to be kept. No, that's not what he said. He didn't say, come to me, all you who are righteous. No, no, no. He invited those who were weary, those who were worn out, those who were despised and depressed. And did you notice that Jesus didn't say, run to me? He, he simply said, come to me. I love it. Walk. Crawl. Stumble. Come any way you can. Come just as you are. And I will give you rest. Did you notice in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Over the years, I've 
observed farmers in a lot of different countries, including Vietnam and Afghanistan and Nepal and, and other places, putting yokes around the necks of, of their oxen and their water buffalo. And no matter how hard they tried, these animals couldn't shake those yokes off their necks. Impossible. So in the Bible, the yoke that we read here is a symbol of slavery. 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's a symbol of oppression. Isaiah chapter 9, it's a symbol of bondage. Lamentations chapter 1. Paul wrote in Galatians 5, Stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now Paul borrowed this term, yoke of bondage from Peter, who wrote it earlier in Acts chapter 15 in reference to the rules and the regulations of, of religious legalism. And yet, this yoke of bondage can't be shaken off no matter how hard we might try. It's impossible. Only Jesus only Jesus can set us free from this yoke of bondage. Only Jesus can set us free from the law. Speaking of the yoke, with Christmas approaching, did you remember that in the carpenter shop where Jesus worked with his earthly father, Joseph, did you know that they made yokes? Yokes were crafted to fit each animal absolutely perfectly in that carpenter shop. So, so when these animals were yoked together, the yokes were custom made. They were done just right. And as you know, the lead ox would lead the way, pulling most of the weight, while the other ox, well, the other ox would just simply follow along. The Bible says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus took upon himself the yoke of the law. He said, come to me. Yoke with me. And he said simply, follow along. I love it. Follow along. His yoke is our hope. He'll lead the way. He'll carry the load. So Orchard, yoke up with Jesus and you will finish strong. Third, third, they epitomized what Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, what we read, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and to receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Have you ever met anybody that they're always looking back? They're always looking in the rear view mirror. They can't get over what happened to them last week, last year, five years, 20 years ago. They're reliving it over and over and over and over again. Paul says just the opposite. He writes, I forget what's behind me and this same mind should be in you. The sins we've committed in the past will condemn us to the place of paralysis. And the good we've done by his grace will puff us up to the place of pride. 
So let's do what Paul did. Let's do what Paul did. Let's leave the past behind and let's move forward. That's exactly what Paul did. Bent over, shackled in a cold, cramped dungeon, reeking with, or, with the odor of sweat and dried blood, Paul wrote this letter to you and me. This letter of encouragement. This man who wrote the greatest portion of the New Testament spent his final days all alone. Yet he was strangely content. This greatest missionary and church planter of the first century didn't even find a trace of self-pity, blame, or bitterness. He expressed no regrets. This, today, just, just try. Just try to imagine Paul, this missionary hero, bruised from the tortures of the past, scarred from the beatings and the stonings and the shipwrecks, shackled all alone in this pit in the ground, this vile, dark dungeon. Try to imagine Paul, the founder of the church in Asia and in Europe, experiencing the dull passage of time on death row. Deserted. Despised. Condemned. No one wants to die alone. Not even Paul. Maybe he heard the soldier's boots on the cobblestone of, on the street which was above him. Maybe it was at that time that he finished his last letter to his son in the faith when he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, the time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. So all alone, without fear, that time Paul looked up directly into the eyes of the execution squad. Several soldiers held rods with which they would soon beat him. One held a sharp axe that would soon sever the apostle's head from his shoulders. Then they marched through the streets of Rome. The manacled prisoner, Paul, shuffling along slowly, stiffly, ragged and filthy from being in that dungeon for so long. But, but Paul was not ashamed. Paul was not ashamed. He knew he was en route to a triumph. The crowning day of his reward for him to live was Christ and to die was gain. No axe across the back of his neck would rob him of his triumphant destiny. So at the first light of dawn, 
The soldiers took Paul to a stump-like pillar. The executioner stood ready, axe in hand. The men stripped Paul and tied him to that low pillar, exposing his back, exposing his neck, and then he was beat with rods one last time. He groaned. And then without a trace of hesitation, the executioner swung the blade that gleamed in the morning sun high above his head, brought it down swiftly, hitting its mark with a dull thud. In that brutal moment, silently, invisibly, the soul of this faithful servant, the man of grit and grace, was immediately set free. His spirit soared to heaven, absent from the body. He was at last, at last, present with his Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. In all that Paul did, the glory went to God. Everything went to God. Paul never forgot. It was all about what God had done through his son, Jesus Christ, not what he had accomplished. Oh, yes, the work may be ours to do, but, but, but the glory, the glory belongs to God. The responsibility may be ours to embrace, but, but the credit is the Lord's alone. So Paul finished strong. His model was Jesus Christ, and that model hasn't changed. God's word was his mandate, and that mandate hasn't changed. His mission was to make disciples, and that mission is now ours to carry on. So, let's take the bread and the cup this morning as we remember our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done so that we can finish strong.